Hello, Pioneering Today podcast listeners. I am so excited to have you on the show today. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects of all time, and that's canning. I admit and confess I'm kind of a canning addict. If I can put it in a jar safely and can it, it usually gets done that way. (laughs) So I am super excited, though, because canning safety is very, very important, and I do see a lot of misinformation passed around the internet a lot on proper canning techniques and what is actually safe to can at home uh, and everything along those guidelines. And so today I'm really excited because we're going to be talking canning safety and safe ways to convert certain recipes that you have um, to make them safe to can. And we're going to be talking with Sharon from Simply Canning. You guys may have heard of Simply Canning before. Her website is pretty big and it's what I reference a lot if I have a question on a recipe. Usually Sharon has the answer for me on her website somewhere. So it's a great resource to have and I'm super excited to have Sharon on the show today. So Miss Sharon, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was really excited when you um, said that you would come on. I was like, yay! So, um, so do you want to um, kind of just go in a little bit into your background and kind of, um, you know, how you got started into canning and that kind of a thing? Sure. Okay. Um, I actually did not grow up canning. Um, you know, a lot of people who do a lot of canning, that was kind of the lifestyle that they grew up in, and I didn't. But... Shortly after I got married, which was 20 years ago, my mom, of course, I was the last child at home, and so my mom and dad were downsizing from the small farm. They had like a small hobby farm. And so she called me the one day and said, Sharon, would you like to have my pressure canner? And I almost turned it down. I almost said, nah, I don't think I'll be doing that. But, and then I thought, well, those are pretty expensive. Maybe I better take it and try it out. And so I tried it out and I just kind of got hooked and it just grew from there. You know, I started off with the easy stuff and I didn't have a huge garden at that point in my life either. But um, just over the years, everything has just kind of grown. The garden's grown. And so my canning, uh, you know, my canning knowledge has grown just as I've done a lot of research and I'm really particular about safety. And so it's something that I've done a lot of research on and, um, yeah, so I'm now I count kind of like you almost anything. <laughs> um, like like I said, we have the the big garden, and so you know we do freeze some things, but um, I can everything from vegetables to meat to you know obviously fruits and fruits and uh, jam and jelly and pickles and things like that. Yeah, but. and I love that, that you said that you didn't start out growing up with a canning background because I, mm-hmm. I did, and I'm very grateful to have grown up uh, in that environment and to get that knowledge and, you know, just kind of hands-on training from the time I was little. But I love because I think sometimes a lot of people feel intimidated if they didn't grow up, and it kind of seems scary. And so I love that you're like, you know, it doesn't matter if you grew up knowing how to do it, that anybody can learn how to can and can jump right. in, um, you know, that it that that's very accessible for anybody to learn how to do. Right. You, you'd be surprised. I get contacted sometimes from um, young women who had canning backgrounds as far as their moms did a lot of canning, but they didn't participate in it a lot. You know, they did some of the gardening stuff, but they were never actually in the kitchen actually canning with their mom. And so they have vague remembrances of, well, I think mom did this and I think mom did that. But um they, if, if you don't know what you're doing and you haven't actually done it, then you just really need to do that research and make sure that you are doing what your mom did or sometimes what mom did wasn't really the safest way to do it. And so, yeah, even if you have that background but you actually didn't participate in doing it, it's, it's really a good idea to do your research. Yeah, so, 
so talking of, what are some of the common things that you tend, people tend to email you or comment a lot on and say, you know, well, my mom or my grandma used to do it this way, but is really not a safe practice to do anymore today? Because I think that there's sometimes a lot of um, confusion because someone will, you know, they'll talk to their grandma and she used to do it that way. And is it maybe up to date on newer safety um, guidelines, you know, and that kind of thing, or they're reading an older canning book because some of the older canning books, you know, from the seventies and sixties and maybe even early eighties, um, some of their recipes, I know, cause I have some of my grandmother's canning books and some of the techniques and stuff in them aren't up to code, so to speak for today. So what's kind of some of one of the most common ones that you run into that really aren't safe practice anymore? Well, the, the, Two things that come to mind that are most common is people want to use the boiling water bath for items that need to be pressure canned, like vegetables. Um, and then the second one, in case I forget to get back to it, remind me, um, is tomatoes. Tomatoes have changed. So let's start first with the boiling water bath. Okay. Some people used to water bath can vegetables, and the what they would do is they would boil it for hours and hours and hours and hours, believing that that would make it safe just because of the length of time. But the problem is, is that water bath canner does not get up to the, the temperature needed, no matter how long you boil it. Boiling temperature does just, it's not high enough. The pressure canner is what brings your food up to the to the temperature that's needed to stop botulism. And botulism is, botulism is the big scary food poisoning that is totally avoidable. I always try to reassure people because sometimes I start talking about this and new canners get all afraid to even try. Mm -hmm. But it's really easy to avoid. Um, but it is something that you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it. And so you just, if you use the pressure canner and you use the proper time and the proper pressure for your altitude, then you're going to avoid botulism and there's going to be no issues. Um, sometimes I'll have people say things like, well, if you just open your jar and if you smell it and it smells fine, then you're good. Well, mm -hmm. no, that's just not the case, unfortunately. I wish it was. There's some spoilage that, yes, you can smell it or you can taste it or you can see it. I've had jars of tomatoes that have gone bad and they're all bubbly inside. I mean, that's a really obvious spoilage, but mm -hmm. there is spoilage that you can't see and so you don't know about it. Um, so that's that's the biggest one. And I remember when I first started my website, which was like five years ago, um, I had my page about how to can green beans. And I had so many people asking me that question over and over and over. Can I water bath can my green beans? And so I think I don't get that question anymore. So I think I've made it really obvious on my, on my website finally that um, it's easier to find apparently the, the information that you just you can't. It's just not safe. And I know that there are people out there even listening to me today who are saying, oh, but but I do, and it's fine, and you know what? Um, I always say there's no canning police. You do what you do in your own kitchen. Um, I'm just telling you what I believe is to be true and what is recommended through the, all the testing and stuff that's done. So yeah. Um, so we can agree to, to disagree, but I probably won't eat your green beans if I come to your house. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then that second item is the tomatoes. And this is really common. Um, a lot of times people don't realize that you need to acidify your tomatoes if you want to do them in a water bath. Mm -hmm. um, now, the reasoning is um, tomatoes have changed in their acidity levels because of all of the, uh, the hybrids and all the different breeding that you do with tomatoes. Um, the modern tomatoes just don't have as much acidity. And they're kind of borderline. So they just recommend that you go ahead and add lemon juice to your jars before you process them. Now, um, some websites say you need to use lemon juice in 
whether you're doing a water bath or a pressure canner. Mm -hmm. And then um, I know the Colorado website, the Colorado Extension website, which we can talk about what the Extension websites are also, okay. if you remind me of that too. Okay, I'll remind um, um, they, they recommend it for just the water bath. They don't recommend it for the pressure canner. Um, not that you can't use it in either or, but um, check your websites locally of where you live because there might be different recommendations on that. But the safest way is just to add lemon juice, whether you're pressure canning or whether you're water bath canning. And you add, um, you add it right to the jar so that you know that you have the right amount of acidity for that amount of tomatoes that are in the jar. Yeah, and two, so. and I know that you know this, but um, also when a canning recipe um, especially when it's to add acidity to something to make it a safe level, when it calls for lemon juice, and usually it's lemon juice and not lime juice, um, but that you make sure that you're using actually bottled lemon juice, right. not fresh lemon, because we can't guarantee the acidity level in a fresh lemon where it's regulated when it's in the jar. So when you're using it, in a, like for example, with your tomatoes, make sure that you're using the concentrated lemon juice in the jar and not just squeezing it fresh from um, lemons that you have got at the grocery store that you grow or whatever. Right, right. And that's the same like um, if you're pickling things and you're using vinegar, um, use a bottled vinegar because it's got that, five, I think it's 5%, 5 yeah. acidity level. And a lot of people make their own vinegar. Like I make my own apple cider vinegar, but I don't use that if I'm if I'm pickling items, because I don't know what the acidity level is. Right. And I'm, I'm so. sure you could get into testing and invest in a whole bunch of stuff, but I'm kind of like you. I make uh, apple cider vinegar at home, and I use that for salad dressings and for baking and, and that kind of a thing, but right. not, not when it comes to canning. And I believe I have, myself personally, I have never seen vinegar on the store shelf that has ever been less than 5% acidity. I think that's um, common, but you do want to make sure that the vinegar you're using is is 5% acidity, which I've never seen any that hasn't been, but I'm assuming at one time there was because I've seen that highlighted in several canning books. To right. Well, you know, I wonder if maybe there's some specialty vinegars that, you know, you can get the red wine vinegar and all the different flavored vinegars. Maybe they're not the correct acidity, but yeah. That might be. Yeah. Almost, yeah, almost any, when you buy the bigger jugs, by the gallon, that's how I buy it. Um, yeah. They all... They almost always say 5% right on the jar. So, yeah. 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 And, and two, um, I don't know about you, but because I always add lemon juice to my tomato products as well. And I, I actually tend to um, pressure can mine just because for me, I have an electric stove and it actually is faster for me to get my pressure canner up to pressure than it is to get my water bath boiling when I'm doing a yeah. large amount. So I generally, anything that, um, of course, I don't pressure can my jams and jellies, I water bath those, but like even my applesauce, my pressure canner actually in the book has the guidelines and, and stuff to pressure can your applesauce. So mm -hmm. I just, I pretty much pressure can anything that's possible. Um, but I do still add the lemon juice to the tomatoes and you don't taste it. I know a lot of people I think are wonder if you taste that, if you haven't been home canning or had home canned goods, you don't actually taste the lemon juice in the finished tomato product. At least I haven't. So it's not going to affect your flavor. Um, if, if that's something yeah. that anybody's concerned about. Yeah. It's a pretty small amount, but, um, but yeah, I don't notice the taste either. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and I don't, you know, I, you commented that you go ahead and you pressure can your fruits and your applesauce and stuff. I live at a very high elevation. Uh -huh. And so I have to process at 14 pounds pressure. And I have, I always have issues with liquid loss because of, and I think maybe it's because of the higher pressure, but I have to let things um, cool off slower in my pressure canner to avoid that. So I just, I'm curious when you do your applesauce and stuff, do you have any problems with it? 
I don't know what elevation you're at where um, you have to process. Yeah, I'm just at like 300 um, feet, so I don't have to use any <laughs> high altitude. <laughs> well, I'm in the foothills of the, of the Cascades in Washington State, but we're just really not that high of altitude here. So yeah. um, I don't experience a lot of liquid loss, but I'm kind of like you. I don't, um, you know, once my pressure canner normally comes down to pressure, when you're pressure cooking, people will cool it fast under cold water, but when you're canning, you want to let it come no. down don't do that. Right. <laughs> um, right. So I just let it come down to pressure naturally on top of the stove. And then, you know, once all the safety levers have went and, and I know that the pressure is down, then I take the lid off and I usually let it just sit in the pressure canner, sometimes up to an hour before I move it onto the counter, onto the folded towel. And so generally speaking, I don't have um, very much liquid loss. You know, occasionally I'll have a little bit, but usually I don't. And two, um, when I'm pressure canning the applesauce, you just, I believe it only comes, is only at five pounds of pressure and it's for a fairly short period of time. Oh, okay. And so it's just, you know, it's so quick that I don't think that it experiences a lot of the the liquid loss because of that. Um, And it probably takes me longer to get up to pressure. Because I have to go clear up to four. I'm at six thousand feet, yeah, so I have up to go so high. Yeah, so that's pressure. probably a difference. Yeah, but I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, your altitude where you live definitely is going to matter on your processing times, and mm-hmm. not just the length of processing time, but like you said as well, the pounds of pressure when you're pressure canning as well. Right. Yeah, and I don't know. Have you do you use the reusable Tatler canning lids very much? I do. I do use those. Not not exclusively, but I've used them quite a bit in the past. Yeah, I've started using them more and more. And what one thing that I've noticed with them, and so I wanted to ask someone else because I don't know very many people um, personally around where I live who have started using them yet, is I notice that especially when I do applesauce with it, not the jams and jelly, those head spaces stay normal just like they should. But the applesauce, it almost is like it creates like a vacuum suction. And so even though um, I always practice the headspace guidelines that are recommended for a recipe. And so if anybody's listening and you don't know, the headspace is from the very top of the jar, the amount of space between where the top of the food comes to. And so that's going to vary for some of your different recipes. So usually it's anywhere, like for is in, usually an inch for meats um, mm-hmm. and vegetables, pressure can, things like that. And then jams and jellies is usually around a quarter inch. Um, but go by your the recipe on what it says. Um, but I've noticed, so I do the proper headspace for the applesauce, and then when I'm using the Tatler lids, when I take it out of the canner and it's just sitting on the shelf, it's actually created a little section of applesauce, and so it looks like that I had no headspace at all, and the applesauce goes clear up to the lid, but then mm-hmm. when you take the Tatler lid off, there's just a little um, bit of applesauce just all around the outside of, or the inside, but the outside part of the jar, like it just suctioned it up the sides of the glass to the lid as it was canning. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. And so it's not like it's full to the top, it's just pulled up around the edge. Yeah, that just what you alongside mean? the glass. Exactly. Yeah. And so I didn't know. I thought, I'm like, that's kind of weird. And I did it to all of my jars and they were sealed perfectly fine. You know, everything was right. fine. Um, and just in the pictures, it looks like I have absolutely no headspace. And so when I opened the jar, I was inspecting it all to make sure that it was fine because I knew that I had had the right headspace when I put them in the canner. So I was just curious if you had had anything like that happen with the Tatler lids. No, you know, I really haven't noticed that at all. Okay. Um, um, and I know that Tatler has a new style of lid out that is supposed to be um, easier. They call it a self-venting. And I haven't used the new, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I don't haven't used the new style of lids very much. So I can't really comment on those. But I know the older lids, which were just the standard Tatler 
Right, those lids. are lids I have. Yeah, yeah. No, I haven't noticed anything like that. Okay, so. well, interesting. I'll have to play around and um, and for anything that we're mentioning, guys, if you're new, if you're a newer listener to the podcast. Um, this is going to be episode number 54, and it'll be on safety canning. And so you can go mm-hmm. to melissaknorris.com, click on the podcast button, and then you will see all of the episodes, and just click on that. And then I, it's fully transcripted, so if you missed anything, you can you can read it. Um, and then I have links to everything we're talking about. So there'll be a whole resource section in it, so you can check out where we're discussing Tatler lids, and I have a review up of Tatler lids and all that kind of stuff. You'll grab all of that stuff in the show notes. So if you're listening while you're on the go, that's generally how I listen to podcasts and that kind of thing. Don't worry about trying to write it down as you're going. You can always come back and grab those resources. We've got them all compiled there for you. Um, And so next is I want to talk about is I love, especially with, with pressure canning, is being able to have meals, homemade from scratch meals, basically ready to go. So on busy nights, I can come home from work and, you know, grab a couple cans of different home canned things and just bring it up to temperature, heat it up. And then dinner can be on the table in like literally like 10 to 15 minutes because I generally Mm -hmm. boil um, my things for about 10 minutes before serving. And of course, that is not going to kill botulism if you didn't um, use proper canning techniques, right. but it, any other foodborne illness that isn't visible, you know, everything looks fine, smells fine like that if there's anything in there. Um, and that might be an older guideline to boil things for 10 minutes before serving. I'm not, um, it's just something that I've always practiced personally. So that's why I say it takes about 10 minutes because I heat my stuff up before we serve it. But I do love being able to have, being able to get supper on the table super quick. And I know that it's all, you know, usually homegrown from us and home prepared. And I know exactly what's going into the food. And so I know um, a lot of people want to be able to um, can soup so that they can heat up their own soup that they have, you know, made and stuff and pre-done. But I, this is another area that I see canning safety issues in because people assume if you can buy it on a can in the store shelf that then you can can it and make it at home. But the store food, their canners can reach much, much higher temperatures and amounts of pressure than we can at home in our pressure canners. Right. It's a difference of equipment. I get that question a lot too. They, you know, well, we can buy, I don't know, SpaghettiOs, some some product that has noodles in it. And so they assume I should be able to do that at home. And um, it, what you're better off, make your soup without your noodles. And then when you're going to serve it, heat it up and add your noodles right there. Um, it's a really easy, easy thing to, to avoid. Um, but yeah, any kind of a thickener, um, you don't want to add cornstarch or anything like that to your soups okay. when you're going to can it. And then now how about dairy? Because I see conf- people, again, saying conflicting things on adding dairy products. Now my understanding, and so I'm hoping you will correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is dairy does not hold up to canning well and is usually not recommended. Is that true? Correct. And But when you say it that way, it almost sounds like it's just a texture or um, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, quality issue. Okay. But it is a safety issue. Okay. Okay. So um, <laughs> the hard part is, is I cannot find, and so if anybody has found something out there that tells us why, um, all of the extension websites, the USDA websites, they all say, don't can dairy, don't can cream soups, you can't can cream sauces and things like that. But none of them really specifically state why that is. And so um, I've chosen not to, and I don't know that I that I ever would. I can't picture milk holding up to canning very well. I just, mm-hmm. um, 
the only reason that I've seen mentioned is that there's fats in the dairy and then that's going to could possibly hold botulism spores. But then the argument against that is, um, or the opposite argument is, well, you can can meat and that's obviously got fats in it too. So um, yeah, that's one of those things that, that if I could find a specific resource that specifically laid it out why, it would be wonderful. <laughs> okay. So, and, and I'm just so. like you, I tend to not... I haven't, I know I've, I've had people say, well, I can milk at home and all this on this. And, and I personally don't, I tend to err on the side of caution when canning. I mean, I love canning. We've, like I said, I've grown up on home canned food. I've been married for, um, over 15 years now, canned the entire year we've time we've been married and ate the food, but I firmly believe in practicing the established guidelines that we have at that time to the best of our knowledge. <laughs> right, right. So if you have a, like a potato soup, a lot of people have emailed me and wanted to can their potato soup. And most often potato soup's going to have dairy in it. Yeah. You add some kind of a cream to it. What you'd need to do is just can your base without the dairy. And then when you're going to make your soup, just add your dairy at the end. You know, can can potatoes with your chicken broth and everything and follow the, the proper canning soup guidelines. So you're not going to want to puree it. You want okay. to can the, everything in chunks, and then when you're going to serve your soup, puree your, your potatoes and whatever else you have in your recipe, your seasonings, and then add your dairy and when you're going to serve it. Okay, that's really, really good. So basically, is if you're using a recipe and you want to can soup, is mm-hmm. no noodles... So no noodles. We're going to add that when you actually. No noodles, no there. rice, no pasta. No rice, no pasta. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm talking over the top of you. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We're fine. We're fine. Okay. It's, we're two friends just chit-chatting and, and then, yay, everybody gets to listen in. I love it. Um, and, and, and then, so no dairy and no pureeing, which is, I think, really important because a lot of the, you know, the canned soups that you can buy in store oftentimes have puree in it. So, and the reason for that, and the same thing is I've seen this online before, and so is it's not safe to can um, pumpkin butter because pumpkin is not acidic and that puree is so thick that the heat can't get all the way through to guarantee that any spores of bad bacteria would be killed. So I'm assuming right. that that's the same reason why you don't can the pureed soup as well. Right, right. Okay. Uh, when you can soup, what, what the directions say is to um, fill your jar halfway with your solid ingredients. Okay. And then fill your jar the rest of the way with your liquid. So that just keeps it thin enough so that there's, if there's any big pieces in there, they're going to get all processed. Um, and then you can just puree it when, when you're done, when okay. you want to serve it. When you want to serve it. So you just would open yes. the jar, heat it up, puree it, and then serve it at that state. Okay. I love that. Because I, I, there's been, I've, yeah, I've seen different, you know, confusion and a lot of questions on that. So I'm really glad that um, I got to talk to you and you got to answer for me as well. <laughs> Um, and so I want to talk about too is, so you have two canning books. And like I said, I actually go to your site quite often when I'm canning. In fact, um, I've, I've looked it up and used it as a reference, I think in, in past podcast episodes, I know in past blog posts and you have two canning books out, correct? Yes. Okay. And so the one I love, so the, your first canning book is kind of just your basic canning recipes, right? Right. It's basically the website in book form. Okay. So. Awesome. And I love, because it's all dedicated to canning, and I love that you follow, you know, the established guidelines. But the one that I was really excited about, because I personally don't have as much experience in canning, um, like, combination recipes, which is what a a home canned soup recipe is considered a combination recipe. So I have done almost everything 
individual wise, but I haven't done a lot of combination ones. And so do you want to kind of share everybody? She has a soup canning um, ebook that goes along with them. So that's the second one. So you kind of want to go over what's in that one and how that one came to be? Sure. That's, it's just um, Simple Soups is what it's called. And it's actually, I, what I do is I give directions to on how to adapt your soup recipe because there's so many soup recipes out there. Yeah. Um, how to adapt it so that it is safe for canning, like, you know, leaving out your noodles and your dairy and, and all of that type of stuff. And then what I've done is I've given you directions on how to make soups from home canned foods. Now, I do have a couple of recipes in there for soups where you make the soup and you can it, but it's actually mostly take a, take a quart of chicken broth and add chicken and carrots and dehydrated different dehydrated foods just to make dinner, not actually to make something that you can can. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. It's so more cooking with home canned foods. Okay. Got it. And I love that because a lot of times, you know, you have all of this canned stuff, um, you know, mm-hmm. and for those of us who cut modern homesteading or preparedness, whatever uh, niche, you, you know, you kind of follow or call yourself, we've got a lot of our a food pantry built up, you know, right. with, like you said, with dehydrated food, home canned foods. But sometimes it can kind of be like, oh my goodness, I have all of this food, but I don't know what's cooked for dinner. <laughs> right. Or, right. Or I don't know how to pull this together into a meal. And so that's where your book comes in. And mm-hmm. so I, I love that. And I believe you, you also have in your books, which is really fun for a lot of those who are hunters, you mm-hmm. also have um, recipes on how to use um, venison and some of those kind of meats as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I have an entire book on elk and venison recipes. And um, again, in the book, I tell you how to can it. There's several different ways, either, you know, raw pack or hot pack ground. You can, okay. you can grind it first and then can it so that you have ground beef or not beef, ground elk or venison. Okay. Or um, in in cubes. Um, And then I give you recipes for just all kinds of different things, stews and casseroles and um, chili and different things like that on how to use it once it's canned. Because that's what I've I've had people ask me that. Okay, so I can this meat. Now what do I do with it? Because it's just different than pulling a piece of, you know, pulling a steak out of your freezer. You're not going to be able to make, you know, hamburgers out of this canned this canned meat. So, okay. Awesome. So I'm super excited. Um, I've got to check out two of them, but I haven't looked as much at the, the elk and venison. And I'm really excited about that because my son and I are actually taking hunter safety's course together this, um, the end of this spring, early summer. It's coming open. I know I'm really excited. And <laughs> so I've cooked regular, you know, um, venison and stuff. We have some neighbors and family members who are avid hunters and have gifted us with pieces, but I've never actually hunted and then got to, had enough to can and preserve up on my own. And Mm -hmm. so I'm really, I'm really excited and hoping, fingers crossed, at least one of us after we get done this fall, will get some so that I'm looking to add to my um, venison and elk recipe repertoire and preserving methods. So I'm excited to check out that one. Um, We're we're big hunters. Um, We eat a lot of wild meat. Um, my hunt, my husband hunts and I have four sons. And so they all hunt. Of course, two of them are now grown and out of the house. I'm, when did that happen? <laughs> but, but they still come home sometimes and hunt. And, and so, yeah, we always have a lot of, a lot of elk and venison around. Awesome. We, have, we have mule deer here in Colorado. Okay. Okay. So. You're in Colorado. I think yes. I that knife, but I, I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm hoping, um, yeah, I'll be joining, joining the hunting and, and we'll see. That'll be a brand new experience. I'm sure I'll have a podcast and blog post on that as it comes, as it comes uh-huh. to. Um, so for those of you listening, 
I, we will have links, like I mentioned, in the show notes at MelissaKNorris.com, podcast episode number 54. And so you, um, we will have links for you to check out Sharon's books and her website. And then also, if you don't have your copy, I have free, so go so that you can get your copy, a free copy of the Ultimate Home Food Preservation Guide. So now it's actually at almost 130 plus resources. And so it's equipment lists, there's tutorials, um, recipes, everything from canning, of course, which I love, um, dehydrating your food, salt curing, fermenting, root cellaring. So kind of any way that you can safely preserve food at home, Uh we have found stuff. Oh, did I lose you, Sharon? I I thought I lost you, but you're still here. Never mind. (laughs) No, we're good. Okay. So anyways, um, I want you guys all to go and grab those resources so that you can safely build up a big old food storage at your home and for your family. So Sharon, thank you so much for coming on today. And I can't wait to check out the Elk and Venison book. And I learned stuff today. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise and knowledge with us. Oh, you're welcome. Awesome. Okay, guys, have a great day, and thank you so much for listening.